Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. We're so grateful for your presence. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord, everybody. It's good to be in the house of the Lord on a Wednesday night. We are in our fourth lesson of the book of Revelation. We're starting chapter 2. Chapters 2 and 3 comprise letters inside of the book of Revelation that are written to seven churches. We're going to deal with each one of them individually, week by week. And I believe that there's a lot that can be gleaned from these churches. Tonight we're going to be looking at the church in Ephesus. And I've got to say there couldn't be a more perfect couple of songs that could be sung um, tonight that would match the lesson. And I didn't coordinate with the worship leader at all. Sometimes it just works out that way. Jesus is good. I wonder if you could pray with me over this. Jesus, I thank you for another opportunity in your house to teach your word. God, I ask that you would help me to teach in a way that you can anoint. Help me to say everything you'd have me to say, nothing more, nothing less. Help me to deliver the whole counsel of God. Let the seed of your word fall on good ground tonight, Jesus. Help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We have... We have studied so far in the book of Revelation, basically the opening, if you will, and the Apostle John has had a staggering moment in uh, Patmos, on the Isle of Patmos, where he's had an encounter with Almighty God. And Jesus, we know that Revelation is an unveiling. It's the revealing. And this whole book is the revealing or the unveiling of Jesus Christ to His church. And John has had that encounter. And we, we know that from last week, the vision that he saw of Jesus Christ. He saw who he called the Son of Man, but who he described as the Ancient of Days. John wasn't confused. He didn't get the two mixed up. He knew exactly what he was looking at. He was looking at Jesus, who was the embodiment of both the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. 
And there was many characteristics that we went over. One of the characteristics that we kind of dove into last week were the flaming eyes of fire and how they represent the all-seeing gaze of Almighty God, how nothing escapes the vision of Jesus. Jesus knows all. He knows everything. You cannot hide from Jesus. It's impossible to hide from Him. And the seven churches here, that is basically what comes to light. That Jesus sees what others don't. And I love that saying. We can fool a lot of people. We might even can fool everybody. But you'll never be able to fool Jesus. Jesus sees what others don't. So let's look at this. Where There are seven churches, specific churches, that John is tasked with writing to. And it's a word specifically from Jesus. Jesus tells him, John, you're going to write to these seven churches. And he's got a specific word for each of these churches. Uh, one question, the most obvious question maybe that would come to mind at first is why these seven? No doubt, and it's a matter of historical fact, that there are far more than seven churches around in that day, at that time. Even in this area, there's more than seven churches. So why these seven? We know in Scripture, seven represents completeness, perfection, um, and people make a lot out of that. I'm not one of those preachers that do make a lot out of that, although we see seven show up a lot in Scripture, and I'm not sure that you would be out of line necessarily in believing that 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 is a sign of perfection. There are many different thoughts on the subject. Some, when they see the seven churches, they see a geographical reason why these churches were selected. If you look at the seven churches or the seven cities, rather, on a map, you'll notice that there, it's exactly along the, uh, the, the mail route, if you will, of the Roman Empire that had to stop by each of these cities. Some people see this as being the reason that these seven churches were selected. I don't take that uh, belief. The reason for that is along this route, there are several other churches that are exactly on the route. Why not one of those? So I don't think that that particular theory holds uh, water very well. Others see in the seven churches, and this one has a lot of uh, hold on a lot of people, they see a representation of the different eras of the church. They believe that Ephesus is a representation of the apostolic age, and then the next, uh, the next church is a representation of the next age, all the way up until Laodicean age, And they would say that that's the age that we're living in now. I feel as if they have fallen prey to one of the great dangers that we often fall to when reading the Word of the Lord, and that is spiritualizing a literal happening. 
uh, to the point where the text does not speak to it. I'm not saying that it's impossible that there's also that meaning there, but I am saying that that is not the reasoning that the Word of the Lord gives us. In fact, it doesn't speak to that at all. And we've got to be careful reading into the text things that are not actually there. And so while I admit if you study the book of Revelation, if you read commentaries on the book of Revelation, if you listen to apostolic preachers teach the book of Revelation, you're going to come across a lot of them that believe that and that they teach that. I openly admit that tonight. However, I don't necessarily hold that view, so I will not be teaching that. I believe, personally, the seven churches were chosen because they were seven literal, actual churches, and God had a specific word that He was needing to give to these churches. I believe that they were chosen more so even than that, but because of the issues that were taking place in each of the churches. When you take the seven churches as a whole and you look at them, the various issues across all of those churches when put together would comprise uh, issues that encompass the, the, the church universal. Every church everywhere at some point is going to deal with these kind of issues. So I believe, uh, along with the fact that these churches are associated with John, some believe John had a hand in planting these churches. I believe that they were specifically chosen for what they can, for their, uh, maybe I could say it this way, their eternal um, aspects of the struggles that they were going uh, through. Each letter written from the Lord to the angel or the leader of the church. We discussed that previously, why I believe that the angel of the church is actually a human leader of the church. Uh, I won't go into that again. Each letter starts with the Lord revealing what He knows about the church and ends with a challenge to the church. So let's look at Ephesus before we dig in really, to the word of the Lord. Ephesus was considered to be the metropolis, if you will, of Asia at the time. One of the largest cities. In fact, some estimate the population to be around 500,000 people. At that time, that was astronomical. That's a huge city. And so there was a lot of things uh, that had to be dealt with in that city it was a port city. It was considered to be the gateway of Asia. We, uh, we have our own gateway, if you will, to the West here in America. We consider St. Louis. It's, it's been known as the gateway to the West. Why was it the gateway? Because it had uh, the river that flowed near there. And so in order to get to the rest of the West, you had to come uh, through St. Louis. And St. Louis was a town where you would stop, you would resupply, and then you would continue on your way. Kind of the same thing here with Ephesus. It was that meeting place. It was a port city in a time where in order to travel, you really needed a waterway. And so it was a large, booming city. It was known, Ephesus, as a center of religion or religious activity, extremely pagan society. There was a temple that was built there 
Um, it's no longer there. You can see the remains of the temple if you visited Ephesus today. But the temple at the time was there and it was built for the Greek goddess Artemis. And worship of this goddess consumed or dominated the culture. They were in a pagan society, a pagan culture. And all of this is important to understand uh, what we're going to deal with later when we look at the specifics of what Jesus had to say to the church. We look at the history of the church in Ephesus. Some believe that it was started by the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla. I kind of lean towards the Bible uh, it seems to suggest that it was more Paul that started this work. But regardless of who started it, um, Paul later used this city as a base or a headquarters for his ministry. And so he would, he would come there and then he would go from there and minister and do what he had to do. In the early days of this church, there was a great revival. And actually, out of all the churches uh, in the New Testament, this is one that we have kind of a clear testimony of some of the revival that happened at the very beginning, very founding of the church. In Acts chapter 19, we read of a special awakening that took place amongst the believers that were there and amongst the town that was there. What had been happening was Jesus was healing and delivering people through Paul's ministry. There were mighty works and mighty miracles that were being done. But as is always the case in every society and every uh, day, while there are uh, a real thing, there's also a counterfeit thing. And there were those who were there in Ephesus who saw what Paul was doing and they decided that they could do it also. They were impressed and they wanted to be like Paul. The Bible calls them exorcists. They were magicians, if you will. They were steeped in pagan ideology and they believed they had the same power as Paul. And in fact... Um, when Paul says, in the name of Jesus, be healed, and somebody is healed, they think that's a magic word. That's a, that's a key word. And so they started paying attention to that. And then Jesus, for real, that's, 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 it, it's in the Bible, Acts chapter 19. And then as um, G- Paul would go and somebody would have a devil inside of them, he would say, in the name of Jesus. And the devil would be removed. And they thought to themselves, right there's the magic word. It's Jesus. So he's, so in their minds, Paul's got great magic. He's, he's got great power. And that's the power, you know, they study magic too. That's the power that they want. And so they decide they can operate in that same thing. Well, the Bible tells us that these men, there were seven uh, sons of Siva, is what the Bible calls them. And there was also, You'll notice, if you read the text, it says that there was a priest there with them and a Jew. So not just these pagan magicians, but there's also a Jewish man that's there that's trying to replicate what Paul is doing, and there's a priest that's there. So it's a conglomeration of the religions of that day trying to replicate what's happening, the authentic work of Almighty God. 
And so they walk up, and if, you're, if you've read the book of Acts, you're familiar with the story. And they walk up to this demon-possessed man. They find one, and I can just imagine them trying to hunt one of these demon-possessed people down. Apparently, they knew, they knew right where to look. Um, it doesn't say that they were looking uh, for very long. They just knew, okay, on you know B Street, there is so-and-so, and we know that person's got a devil, so let's go and let's, let's work some magic. And so they find this man and they uh, get over there to him and they say the magic word. They say, and, it, and I love how it's, it's phrased. Brother Chad, they said, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. <laughs> We've got it. He said, in the name, we don't believe it or preach it, but it, that's the magic name and you've got to come out. We've got authority over you. In Jesus' name that Paul preaches, come out of them. And the Bible says, and it's incredible, the demon looks at him and he's probably laughing on the inside too. These guys don't have a clue. And the demon says, he talks to the seven sons of Siva and the priest and the Jew and he says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? This is not some magic potion, some magic formula, some spell that you conjure up and cast on somebody. That's not the name of Jesus. The demon was very aware of it. The sons of Siva weren't. And the Bible says that the demon jumped on them, caused them to run out of there, stripped them naked, and they ran in fear of what had happened. They had no control over Satan. And we live in a world even now where there are replicas, there are people trying to, con they, they treat Jesus like it's a magic potion, magic spell, that they can just say the name and just anything happens. But there has to be an association with Jesus. There has to be an obedience to Jesus. We have to be under the name of Jesus. Because what you're doing when you say in Jesus' name, you're operating with His authority. Amen. And so there's a whole other lesson that we could teach about baptism in Jesus' name. But So we see what happens here, and what I'm trying to point out is what happens next. Anybody remember what happens next? What happens next is the people are watching this happen, and they realize, wait a minute, because they're in pagan society, no doubt these guys, the seven sons, and the priests, and the Jew were not the only ones who believed that Paul was a magician, that he was operating in some super spell. They were not the only ones who felt that way. Every, a lot of people must have felt that way. And the Bible says that when they saw what happened, they realized this is not just another magician. This is not just another prophet. This is not just another somebody. There's, there's something else to this. The God that Paul preaches is very real. And he has very real power. And the Bible says that they were convicted in their heart. And they went up and they repented, it says. And they gathered up all of their books. And the Bible says that it's uh, different arts that they gathered up. What it was is books on black magic. They gathered them all up together because this is what a society steeped in this stuff. They gathered them together, they put them in a pile, and they lit them on fire. They burnt them, and they praised Jesus as Lord. 
they had a strong conversion, a strong encounter with Almighty God because what they saw, they saw the real and the unreal contrasted side by side and it caused this intense conversion. And we're going to draw back on this in a little bit, but I wanted to point out that there was a very sincere move of God that happened at the beginning of Ephesus, at the beginning of this church. Amen. So they were moved, convicted, they burnt this, and what's interesting, someone calculated the cost of, and it's obviously it's their estimation, the cost of the books that were burnt that day. Because these weren't just people that were practicing, Brother Chad, black magic but they were benefiting from selling the books. They were, they were benefiting from the souls that were buying this stuff. And they threw their stuff away as well. And someone calculated that it would have been around 50000 in silver in that day, just lit on fire. And see, we think in our minds... That is just unbelievable. That's unreal. That's not right. But to them, they had found Almighty God. And they would rather serve the real, authentic God of the universe than serve a fictitious fake of that God. So they had a real conversion and it was followed by real sacrifice. And they had real repentance. They were young in the Lord, yes, but they were convinced of their love for Jesus Christ. And again, we know at one point Paul based out of there. And it's interesting, in Acts 19 it says this, it says, because of this church, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. A mighty church, a great church. Indeed, it's believed as I stated earlier, that the other six churches that we're going to study were started because of this church. That this was the founding church that caused other churches to come into existence. At the time of this writing, this church is around 40 years old. At the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. What that tells us is that they not only were fervent and strong in their faith, but they passed it on. To the next generation. Because this is their children. The ones who were converted in the book of Acts. This is their children that John is writing to. So it was passed on. So they did good. This was a great church. And it was in a great city. The metropolis of all metropolises. And here's the, the church of the living God. No doubt. If we were alive and we were in that time. We would think of this church kind of like the POA. Like that's the church, and I'm. And if anybody's watching and listening, I'm not attacking the POA. I do not believe the POA is the church of Ephesus that we're about to get into. The point is, is this was a large church that the eyes of Christendom at that time were looking at. It was the church. That's the church you wanted to be like. That's the church you wanted to attend. They had it rocking. They had it going at the church of Ephesus. Other churches looked up to the church of Ephesus. And this brings us to the details of the letter that was written to this church. I tried to lay a foundation, and then let's look at the details of the letter. Verse number 1 reads like this. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. 
In each letter that we're going to discuss, that we're going to read, each letter identifies something about himself that the church needs to know and be reminded of. As we said before, Ephesus was a great city and it had a great church. And it's easy, if you will, to make the mistake of believing that they got where they were because of themselves, because of their charisma, because of their talent, because of their ability. Or maybe it was, and this is probably more closer to the truth, maybe it was they needed him in the beginning, but now that we're rolling and we've got it together, you know, they can do it. They can make it on their own. They're good. They needed him in the beginning. Now they're good. Pride is a ministry killer. It's not just a ministry killer, but it's a saint killer. It's a walk with God killer. We can't afford to allow pride at any stage of our walk with God to rise up inside of us. So here Jesus reminds them, and remember that sounds familiar because of uh, what he said. He, he had already mentioned this earlier. We studied it last week. It's almost the exact same thing. Here Jesus reminds them that he's the one who holds the stars. And who are the stars? The stars of the angels of the seven churches, it said. So these are the, these are the, the, the leaders, the representative. He holds them. And the word there, hold, is literally, it's a firm grasp. Jesus is not going to lose his grasp on the leaders of his church. Therefore, he's not going to lose his grasp on his churches. He's got them. And the next thing he points out to them is he says that he's walking, and we talked about this in depth last week as well. He's walking in the midst of the candlesticks, the candlesticks representing the churches. He's walking in the middle of the churches. Almighty God walking in the middle of his churches. And that ought to stir something inside of us. We talked last week, Jesus goes to church. He, he's not just he's not just a far off spectator. He's not just watching on live stream. It says that he's walking in the middle of them. He comes to church. He looks around. Those all, that all seeing gaze of Almighty God comes to church with us. He reminds his church. Then again, every time in every one of these letters, he's going to begin with something that identifies himself to the church and it's kind of a reminder of who he is to the church. And here he reminds them that he's got them in his hand and that he's walking amidst them. In other words, he reminds them that he's in control, that it's still his church, that they didn't build it without him. It's his church. He walks in the midst of it. He holds the leadership in his hand. It's his church. He reminds them of that. And then we look at Verse number two, he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. I love this. Jesus starts out, I know Thy works. Jesus knows. Jesus sees everything. Nothing escapes the gaze of Almighty God. He knows everything, good and bad. And He just starts right out there at the beginning of it. I know your works. You can't hide it from me. 
I see it. I see what motivates your heart. The man looks on the outside, but I see deeper. I cut to the, to the problem. I see deeper. Jesus begins with the good and the positive, which is something that we could know whenever we've got something to tell somebody. It might be good to start out with a few positive things to help them out before you go right to cutting their throat. And we see Jesus, Jesus starts out with the good, the positive. He says, I, I know your works. I see your dedication to and labor for the kingdom of God. He praises them for their dedication and labor for truth. These people are hard workers. They cared a lot about the kingdom of God and about the work of God and about giving everything they've got for that work. Someone said every church has got four kind of bones. They've got wishbones. They're the people who do all the wishing and the dreaming, but none of the doing. They've got the jawbone. Those are the people who they talk an awful lot. But again, they don't do any of the work. Then you've got the knuckle bone, and they're the people that are always knocking everything, beating up on the people of God. They're the slanderers. They're the criticizers. They're the people where everything's negative, nothing's going good. Every church comprises these people. Don't look around and look for them. (laughs) You might be that person. Amen. Then there's the last part. There's the backbone. The people of Ephesus, they were backbones. They were hard workers. They were people that knew how to work and labor for the kingdom of God and they loved it and they did it for Jesus. They were hard workers. And and Jesus, He compliments them. He praises them. He thanks them for their dedication and their hard work for the kingdom of God. And then... He says that they were patient. He encourages them and praises them for their patience in trials. Trials, I've said it so many times, but they are a natural part of living for God. You cannot escape them. You can't get away from them. If you're living for God, I know some people teach that it's all sunshine and roses, but that's just not true. In fact, the the closer you are to authentic Christianity, the more trials you're going to go through on this earth. Why? Jesus said they hated me, so they're going to hate you. So if you're authentic, if you're the real deal, if your faith is genuine, you're going to run into some problems. Yes, Jesus is going to take care of you. Yes, He's going to take care of His church. But you are going to run through some some situations in this life. Jesus praised them because they had endurance. That word patience, hypomone, same one that uh, James used. It's endurance. It's that keep going attitude. It's that even though we ran into a trial, even though my faith got rocked a little bit here or a situation caught me there, I'm just still going to keep moving forward. It's that endurance, that keep going, that patience. They refused to bow their knee to false gods, to the emperor. And because of this, 
They found themselves targeted for persecution, constantly targeted for persecution. And yet they kept going. They remained faithful. They endured persecution. They were targeted physically and financially, and yet they endured. Lastly, Jesus praises them for their doctrinal discernment and purity. Theologically, this church was sound. It's the kind of church that I want to attend. They were grounded in the truth. They were fortresses of the faith, if you will. They were rock-solid, oneness, apostolic people. They defended the truth with vigor. They were, they were all about it. They, there was not an inch of backup in this church. They loved the truth. They fought for the truth. They called out heretics and they fought against heretics. Their reason for this, we go to Acts 20 and verse 29 and Paul, the, the last parting word that he gave them was a prophecy really. He said, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. They stood against, even hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So Paul warns them, whenever I leave, false teachers are going to move in. When I leave, false doctrine is going to creep in. And you know what this church did? And I love, I, I just love their attitude, their passion. They said, no. You're telling us they're coming? That's fine. Bring it on. We're going to stand for truth. We're going to stand for Almighty God. We're going to stand for apostolic doctrine. We're going to stand for the oneness of God. Jesus' name, baptism. We're going to stand for holiness. And they decided with everything in them right then and there, Paul is warning us it's coming. We're going to stand. And that is something that's worthy of note. That's something that's worthy of praise. A church that is willing against the tide of the empire, that's against the tide of the darkness of the world, just decides and makes up in their heart they're going to stand for truth. And that was the church of Ephesus. That was the heart of the church of Ephesus. A heart to defend the gospel. They stood against We read in verse 7, they stood against and they even hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Um, People are not completely sure. We're not completely sure. But we have a little bit of an idea given to us in a letter to one of the other churches later on. Essentially, the Nicolaitans are mentioned in the same concept um, by Jesus as the doctrine of Balaam. What was the doctrine of Balaam? Balaam was that false prophet, or he was the, a prophet rather, that told Balak how to destroy the people of God. He said, if you'll get the people of God to sin, if you'll get Israel to compromise, if you'll get, if you'll get them to leave their covenant with God, their commitment to God, then you can destroy them. That's the doctrine of Balaam. So I kind of believe that the Nicolaitan doctrine that is, um, that they're fighting so hard against here is a spirit of compromise. It's a doctrine of compromise. That isn't that alive and well in our world today? 
We've got Christians and churches left and right who are looking for ways to compromise with the world. Let's give a little bit here and let's give a little bit there. And as long as we keep the essentials, right? We keep the main things and we can let this go and we can let that go. And you know what? The Ephesian church hated that. They hated compromise. They hated any, any, just any whiff of an idea of falling away even a little bit from being pleasing to God. It says they hated that doctrine. And you know what's even uh, more impressive than that, even more scary than that, is Jesus said, you've done well. I hate them also. Wait a minute. Jesus is hating things? Yes. Jesus said he hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Jesus hates as well a compromising spirit. It can't be allowed in the church. And so this church is doing good. They're fighting the false doctrine. They're pushing back against the world. They're standing uh, for righteousness and holiness and the truth. And they were, they were, they're doing great. And Jesus praised them. No doubt. If you were there that day, and you've got to imagine that, I don't know when it came in, it may have came in on a Saturday, might have got the letter, and what they would do is they would wait until that Sunday to get together and they would read those letters, the, the, these, these books that we have of the New Testament, they're originally letters, and they would give them to the churches and they would read them to their congregations, and no doubt on that Sunday, the letter comes from Patmos. And they're sitting in the congregation. And if you're sitting in that congregation with them, no doubt in your mind, no doubt in my mind, this point in this letter, you're smiling big. You're thinking, wow, we have done good. Jesus has praised us three separate times. He is, and we have been working. We've been laboring. We've been sacrificing. We've endured trials. We've fought false doctrine. We've stayed pure. We've, we've kept, we've kept heresy away from us and we've called out heretics and we've identified them. We're doing good. No doubt they had that smile on their face as they were thinking to themselves, wow, the, the praise of, of the, you know, it's been said there's no praise like the praise of the praiseworthy. He's worthy of praise, and when Jesus gives us praise, that's something. No doubt they were smiling and they were thankful for the praise that the Lord was heaping on them. And then comes the but. And then comes the nevertheless. Verse number four. Nevertheless. And imagine you're the, you're the audience as the uh, man of God is up there reading the letter to you and he comes across and you're thankful for all the praise that has been coming forth and then all of a sudden you hear across his lips there's more folks nevertheless I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love the shock that must have taken the audience they were just High on pride of the praise, of the praiseworthy. And then they get hit with that. One writer sums up the shock that the letter must have gave the church this way. What more could the church at Ephesus desire? How proud would we ourselves have been had the Lord addressed such a letter to our own church 
And yet I suspect that the members of the church were not satisfied with the letter, for it contained a complaint as well. Several weighty commendations and one small complaint, and yet the complaint outweighed the commendations. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. You have lost your first love. I am quite sure that on that first Sunday following the arrival of the mail from Patmos, after the letter had been read from the pulpit of the church at Ephesus, the smile of contentment gradually vanished from the faces of the congregation and a prolonged and embarrassed silence prevailed. The first part of the letter was all but forgotten and now the thoughts of all present were concentrated on that one little sentence. The Nicolaitans vanished like morning mist. The magnifying glass of orthodoxy disappeared. The patience and labor were forgotten, and the church stood dumbfounded before that one complaint of Christ. You have lost your first love. How shocking that must have been. They thought they were doing good. They were smiling. Everything was great. No doubt they were patting each other on the shoulder. We've been working for this. We've been, we've been laboring. We've done everything we've, we can for the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden, nevertheless, I've got somewhat against thee. You've left your first love. We have to ask ourselves, what is the first love? There are several views. People have different views on what it means to the first love. Some of them believe that it's just the love of the brethren. Some believe that it's the love of Jesus. I kind of believe that it's a little bit of both. But I do believe that it was mainly the love of Jesus that they had lost. They lost their love for Jesus, and that was what was affecting their love for the brethren. There is no substitute for love. You can fake it for a while, but eventually it will be manifest and it will be made known. Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that the foundation of everything we believe, everything we do is the love of God. And if there is no love, nothing else matters. He said you can operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. You can have revival and you can have great church and great moves of God, but if there's not love, it doesn't matter. And so we've got these people. And no doubt you're asking, how is it that they fought so hard for right doctrine? How is it that they labored so effectively and fervently for righteousness and holiness? How is it that they labored for the kingdom of God and they were visiting the poor and feeding the needy and helping and they were doing all the right stuff, but somehow their love for God their love for Jesus grew cold. How is that possible? They labored and worked and fought for the kingdom, but all the while, unaware, underneath, there was an erosion that was taking place. 
an eroding that was slowly happening. They were unaware. They were covering it up. They, they covered it up with passion. They covered it up with fervency. They covered it up with desire for, for fighting for righteousness and holiness and right doctrine. They covered up that erosion of, of love for God that was taking place so surely underneath the surface. See, devotion eroded while doctrine remained untouched. You cannot be saved without right doctrine. I want to be clear. But you can have right doctrine and lose devotion and be lost just as well. The whole time, they were right in their doctrine. They were working for God. They were doing what they could. They were laboring. They were showing up when they were needed. They were doing the right stuff. But their relationship with God was missing. It was eroding. Their devotion to Almighty God was slowly slipping away. They were so focused on their work and defending the faith that they forgot the God of their faith. And how many times could that speak, if you will, to us? How many times are we so focused on everything else and all the stuff that we forget our relationship with God. We've got to show up at church on this time. We've got to make sure the lights are on. We've got to make sure the church is clean. We've got to make sure that we're witnessing properly. We've got to make sure we're doing this and we're doing that. We've got to make sure that, uh, that the, the water bottles are up here. We've got to make sure. We've got to make sure. We've got to make sure. We've got to work. We've got to work. We've got to make sure that we're standing for righteousness and we're standing for holiness. And as the preacher, I've got to dive into the Word. And I've got to make sure I'm, I'm in line with the Word of God and I'm preaching truth and I'm teaching truth and out of all of that and all the work that we're doing and all the laboring we're doing and all the progress we're making for God and we're, we're on our way to a new building and I believe it's coming and, and we're working hard for it and we're pressing, we're pressing and the question is, is underneath all of that how is your devotion to Almighty God? It's just a simple how is your prayer life doing? How often do you talk to the God that you say that you serve? You're so committed to truth and righteousness and holiness and that's great and that's awesome and I commend you for it and I'm thankful for it and I'm thankful we serve a God, we serve a, we serve in a church that loves the truth of the word of the Lord, but how much are we dedicating to God? How much devotion do we have to Him? And that's the question that's being asked. They were so worried about outside influences destroying the church that they failed to guard the inside. So worried about outside influences. See, so many times, and that can, that's not just defending against false doctrine. That's us personally too. We're, we're, we're fighting so hard to live for God and to please God and to not fail Him. And we're not going to do this and we're not going to go there and we're not going to say this. And we're, we're working so hard to keep those fences up. But we ne so we're, we're making, we, we would call that negative progress and that's good. And you've got your boundaries and you're doing what you've got to do to protect your, your holiness and your righteousness. But the question is, have you made any progress to Him? That's down here. You're doing good. But how about this connection? 
He says, Jesus said, you're doing this right, you're doing that right, you're doing that right, you've got all of that down, I'm proud of you, I'm thankful for you, you're doing good. But you lost your first love in the progress. You forgot why you were doing all of that. Why am I laboring so, so, uh, so, why am I so dedicated to the truth? Why am I laboring so much for the church and the kingdom? Why are we pressing so hard for a bigger church? Why are we reaching for people and, and lost loved ones and praying for people? Why, why, why? Motivation. Our dedication. How's it doing? The church at Ephesus. The great church. It was failing in that thing that mattered the most. Vance Havner said it this way, the danger to the church is not the woodpecker on the outside making all the noise. It is the termites on the inside, slowly but surely eating away the foundations. You've got the outside figured out. We can see evil coming from a mile away. We know what evil is working in our world. We're fighting against it. We're pushing up against it in America. The evil that we're, the church is facing, we're aware of all that. And we know it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse each day that goes by. The darkness is going to get greater. We know all that. We, we see the danger from the outside. But the real danger is on the inside. It's losing devotion. It was Paul that said, Oh, that I might know Him. Power of His resurrection. Fellowship of His suffering. If Paul was able to pray, Oh, that I might know Him, how much more should we? We've got to... Get back to the basics. And the question is tonight, how important is this to God? How important is the church's relationship with Jesus? Because it would be easy to say, well, if they had doctrinally everything right, they've got holiness down, they've got oneness down, they're filled with the Holy Ghost, gifts of the Spirit is operating, they've got all of that down, so what if they're, if they're missing a little bit on the devotion side? On their love for God. How does that affect them that much? Let's look at verse number 5. Remember therefore whence thou art fallen. Jesus considered it a fall. And repent and do the first works. Or else, here we go. How serious is it to God? I will come unto thee quickly. And will remove thy candlestick out of his place. Except thou repent. Jesus threatened to remove their candlestick. How serious is a church's relationship to God, a church's devotion to God? It's every bit as serious as, as being faithful doctrinally. We have got to be committed to Jesus Christ. We've got to be in love. Notice this. It would be Jesus and not Caesar that shut the, the doors of that church. That church that loses devotion to Jesus, that church that falls out of love for Jesus, it would be Jesus that closes those doors and says, I'm not having any part of that anymore. Not Caesar, not the government, not the darkness of the world, not Satan. Jesus himself says, if they've got no devotion for me, if they've got no love for me, I don't want to be any part of that. We're faithful doctrinally, but if Jesus is not here, then none of it matters. Jesus doesn't leave this church hopeless, though. 
One writer says it this way. He says, No word of warning or condemnation has ever been addressed to a church, however lukewarm, or to an individual Christian, however carnally minded, to which the Lord would not wish to add a postscript of promise. Jesus never rebukes without offering a way out. Jesus tells them, repent and get back to the first works. He says, if the music would like to come, he says, get back to the basics. What are we talking about those first works? No doubt those Ephesian Christians, they had to be going way back. And no doubt they were thinking of their parents as they, that, that day came along where God showed himself to be the real God. The man of God called out a demon and the demon had to obey. And then those false prophets, those liars, those fake magicians tried to do the same thing and they were unable to. And there was a great conversion that took place. And there was great sacrificing. And they got together and they they repented of their sins and they burnt their sins. And what does that represent? It literally happened, but it represents a turning away from their sins and a marching towards the Lord. No, there's no wonder why they were so committed to apostolic doctrine. Paul said that they're coming. He said the evil teachers, the false teachers, they're coming. You've got to beware. And so they did. They guarded themselves. They protected themselves from all outside influences. But in the process of protecting themselves, they lost that thing that mattered the most. And so he says, you've got to go back. Go back to your first love. See, originally, whenever they would defend the the doctrine, when they would defend the truth, it was out of a love for God. Somewhere along the way. And it's one of those things where I don't know when it started and how it ended up to where it was, to how bad it got. But at, at first, no doubt, they were defending the doctrine. They were defending truth. They were laboring in the kingdom out of just love for Jesus Christ. But somewhere along the way, they started doing it just because that was the thing to do. You work for the kingdom. I'm a part of this church. I show up whenever I'm needed. I work hard. I do what I need to do. I pray when I need to pray. I I sing when I need to sing. Preach when I need to preach. And all of a sudden, it became routine. Just something they did. And they fought. And it was good that they were fighting. But all the while, they were missing that devotion I wonder if you could stand Jesus tells his church I'm thankful that you're patient in trials I'm thankful that you just keep living for God no matter what comes at you no matter the hard trials that come you know what you did you just kept living for God I'm thankful for that I'm thankful that you just kept working for the kingdom Jesus said, you know what? Anytime the church needed anything, you were the one that showed up. You were the one that did what had to be done. Anytime the church needed you, you're there. You work hard for the kingdom of God. And I'm thankful for that. Jesus said, I'm thankful for your commitment to the truth. Anytime any wind of false doctrine comes along, you take a stand for righteousness and holiness and you defend it. And you're brave with that. You've got courage and you've got vigor and you do it out of... And that's the question. Out of what? Thank you for, for 
showing up and working and laboring for the church. Thank you for staying with the church through every trial. Thank you for defending the truth and righteousness and holiness. But why? Why? Jesus said, I've got one thing. You're doing, you're doing so good. But I've got one thing against you. I've just got one thing. You've left your first love. You've left that thing. Do you remember? I got a question tonight just for us. This isn't for the church of Ephesus. Do you remember where you were when Jesus first found you? Do you remember that passion, that love that you had? I can still remember the first time that I spoke in tongues. Do you remember where you were? The move of God, the passion that you had for the kingdom of God. We've got to have that awaken in us. We've got to get back to the basics. That's the message to the church of Ephesus. And it was directly to their church, but that message is to every church of all time. Work hard, defend the truth, labor in love and in righteousness and hope. But you've also got to get back to the basics. I wonder if we could find just a place to pray and let's just take a moment and let's just recommit, reconsecrate ourselves. Let's go ahead and search our hearts. Have Jesus search our hearts.